Mr. Speaker. You're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Consulting. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson. Thank you for setting your podcast out at 14th and G. I am your host, Dean Hinkson, joined once again by my erstwhile companions. What does erstwhile even mean? But they are erstwhile here at the firm, Republican Bruce Melman, Democrat David Thomas. We're going to break down all of 2023 in 23 minutes, and there is a lot to break down, uh, starting with, if you hear the sound of a ticking clock, that's because it's the debt limit, and it's also the first topic of the new Melman quarterly slide deck. Exciting. (laughs) Bruce, you framed the slide deck in terms of the four addictions. America has four primary addictions that are... I think maybe resulting in some policy disruption, if not policy failure. Uh, You start with debt, uh, then it's China, uh, tech, and now AI, and inflation. That's sort of the framework as you lay it out? It is. I'd say more uh, policy imperative. So we spent the first two decades of this century with things that had some upsides, but had negative externalities that were growing. So You know, digital has been great in a lot of ways, but we all know the many ways, whether it's privacy or consumer protection or digital addiction, that were downsides. And they've grown and we haven't really done anything about it. When you borrow money, you get to spend on defense and you get to cut taxes and you get, you know, everybody gets a car. The problem is our debt is now in the 30 trillions range and we have a debt ceiling uh, theoretically causing us to reconsider some of that. Uh, we've had an era of easy money. So starting with the tech bubble failure, the Fed would drop rates really low. They would buy a lot of assets, so-called QE, quantitative easing. It was super easy to get money to invest in things, but that led to asset bubble. And finally, with respect to um, China, the trade with China was was disinflationary, which was good. We could uh, buy things more uh, inexpensively, which was good for consumers. But under President Xi, China's become more aggressive. Uh, more repressive, and uh, and we're having to reconsider all four of these things. Um, happy to dive in and start with debt because we're reconsidering that real time. Well, let's start with debt. Uh, we, we really try to be time frame agnostic here at 14th and G, but uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna, we're here. It's late Monday afternoon. Uh, President Biden and Speaker McCarthy are set to meet uh, here just shortly. We're not sure what's going to come of that meeting. David, we're starting to see some of the parameters of what a debt ceiling deal uh, would look like. Treasury Secretary has set the quote-unquote deadline at June 1st when we really uh, exhaust all of the change in the sofa cushions. What do you see coming out of the White House today, and how is all this going to get put together? Boy, that's the... uh Many, many trillion dollar question there, uh, Dean. Um, I'd like to ask all of our listeners uh, from from here on 14th and G uh, to all the way out in California, let's say Sausalito, California, <laughs> to say a little prayer uh, for a meeting that is scheduled to take place in the next 90 minutes between the President of the United States and the Speaker of the House. Uh, they've met before. The uh, meetings have not been as productive as I think any of us would like at this point. Look, I think we're now at crunch time. We're at the deadline. We are all hoping that they can get together. I do know the White House staff, uh, led by Shalanda Young and uh, Steve Rochetti, met with Congressman Graves throughout the weekend. But these kind of a deals always need the principles 
to close it at the end of the day. So let's hope in the next 24 to 36 hours, we get a little uh, white smoke out of the uh, West Wing and, and a deal has been reached. We'll keep our fingers crossed because if a deal isn't reached, we are in true uncharted territory. But it sounds like they're negotiating. That's they are, a step they, forward. They are negotiating, and maybe you can edit this uh, you know, podcast for us. So let's say this. The meeting went great. <laughs> Pause. Fast forward five seconds. The meeting was horrible. I can I can fix all of this. Good. I can fix all of this. And and we've asked for we've asked for backward looking prayers. Um so we're set. Bruce, look, I you know, it strikes me uh President Biden has cut one of these debt ceiling, big debt ceiling negotiation deals before. Uh, in in 2011 when he was vice president you know you see the parameters here uh, we're talking about some form of spending caps uh, we're talking about some policy changes here in terms of work requirements for social programs permitting reform uh, for for new energy production we're gonna you know there's some form of white smoke I think is going to come here I can edit that out too uh, but then the real work, I think, begins because Speaker McCarthy, Leader Jeffries, Leader Schumer, Leader McConnell all have sales jobs to do uh, to actually deliver the votes for this deal. No, you're, you're, of course, right. The last thing I might add to the elements of this stew are clawbacks, some COVID clawback money, uh, which, you know, two weeks ago they had uh, $300 billion unspent. It's down to like $30 billion unspent. Maybe I'm looking up for helicopters, maybe dropping the, uh, the remaining COVID money. They, they look, they've got sales jobs. Also, the reality we know is these deals ultimately don't pass party lines for the most part. So it probably is going to require in the House, some Republicans, some Democrats. It's definitely going to require 60 in the Senate, which forces a bipartisan vote. You know, one element to me that's been uh, interesting has been the degree to which the speaker has been misunderestimated. You know, people said there's no way, probably uh, my colleague here on 14th of G would have said he's not going to get a bill passed. Show us your plan. He got a plan passed in the House. Well, he's not going to hold the right wing. So far, he's holding the right wing. Well, the Senate's going to, you know, Chuck and uh, and Mitch are going to cut a deal. Nope, Chuck and Mitch aren't cutting a deal. Senator McConnell and Senate Republicans say to the president, you can't not negotiate. You must negotiate. And the guy you got to negotiate with is, is the speaker. And here we are an hour and a half away from the next round of the negotiations. So... I think they're going to find a deal. I think the uh, you're right. They're going to have to build the legislation. I don't know they've got the time. So it will be really interesting if they can get something on the floor and passed in the House prior to June 1. So uh, let's hope Yellen is holding uh, a couple of bucks somewhere in reserve under the desk at Treasury. Maybe you could send in your quarterly payment a few days early there, Bruce. That could help <laughs> us get through this period. The only person who's been uh, underestimated more than, than uh, Speaker McCarthy is, of course, Joe Biden himself. And I recall on this very podcast back in 21 thinking there's no possibility Joe Biden could get anything done in an equally divided Senate and a very, very small margin in the House. And uh, boy, did President Biden prove everybody wrong there. Um, he's been involved in these negotiations for a long time. Uh, he knows how to cut a deal. And I think that's inherently who he is. He likes to be the guy at the, in, in the room at the end of the day who cuts the deal with Republicans. That is who he wants to be as president. So look, the time is right here. I hope that Speaker McCarthy feels the same way about cutting a deal and is not held hostage to his far right. But I am, uh, you know, hope springs eternal uh, here at 14th and G. So uh, let's let's hope it goes the right way. Hey, look, there's no there's no denying it. Democrats got a huge, massive spending package uh, or <laughs> titled the Inflation Reduction Act. It's only going to cost them one West Virginia Senate seat. 
And, uh, you know, it's, it's a mega trillion dollar plus spending package. But, Bruce, we frame this in terms of addictions. And let's just point out here what we're talking about. America is horribly addicted to debt. Uh, the pandemic era, this is not a partisan observation. This is under Republican and Democratic administrations. We blew the bank. We're over $30 trillion in debt. And here we're having this debate over curbing spending, but the Republicans say don't touch defense, and the Democrats say don't touch domestic programs. And so we're, and you sure as hell. And case, both sides say don't touch entitlements. Don't touch entitlements. So we're balancing the, we're, we're trying to balance the budget or bring some fiscal sanity on a very thin sliver of what constitutes actual federal outlays, a very thin slice of non-defense discretionary spending. You're right. The, the really big drivers of long-term debt aren't even on the table for discussion, which is obviously a challenge. But when we think of the four addictions, none of these are heroin or fentanyl. They all have upsides, even debt. You know, if you go into debt to get an education, that could be long-term a really smart investment you made. The United States, when we invest in research, when we invest in education, when we invest in infrastructure or defense, we're making investments in the long-term success and survival of our nation and our way of life. To me, what I worry about is when you project forward, the interest cost on the debt will increasingly crowd out these types of investments in the future. And you marry that up with the baby boomers, the me generation retiring, their health care costs, their social security costs. Um, it's very worrying. And, and we observe, and we'll move from this addiction, but we observe that whether it's the Roman Empire or the Soviet Empire or the British Empire, uh, excessive debt seems to figure in the decline of histor history's empire. Uh, the second addiction on the list, China. Look, we've got a lot of clients. We know a lot of a lot of corporate America has done uh, enormous uh, work and made enormous effort to reorient their supply chains uh, away from China. It's not a done deal. We we still rely on uh, China for an enormous amount of the manufactured goods uh, that are in American markets, but. You're right. It, it's uh, you know from Uyghurs to, uh, to to forced labor. It's what what started as a high level of confrontation under Trump uh, and tariffs uh, has really not lit up uh, under the Biden administration. No, the Biden administration directionally has made no change from the Trump uh, foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis China. It's gotten more organized um, and probably a little bit more process and predictable, but it is absolutely a new era that the administration sees, and, and they're proceeding in the same direction. You know, for all the folks we work with, the observations are first, that there's no more bipartisan issue in Washington than the bipartisan worry. And you saw this on the China Commission, you see this with people like Senator Warner and Senator Rubio at Senate Intel. Um, overwhelmingly, U.S. policymakers believe that uh, things have changed and we need to be a lot more careful uh, and a lot tougher vis-a-vis U.S.-China policy. That's taking the form of uh, decoupling, de-risking, and containment. And so things like tighter export controls, outbound investment restrictions are not a matter of if, they're a matter of when, uh, but they're coming very soon. Greater focus on supply chain transparency, uh, worries about retaliation. Last thought, for me, what was so interesting on the four addictions is how not only are each difficult, but they're interrelated and that the solution set for any one addiction threatens to make the others uh, tougher to deal with. So for example, what's the solution set on China? Well, first let's invest more in DOD and R&D and infrastructure, only that makes debt worse. 
Let's also, let's, let's trade less with China. Let's decouple, but we will break the most efficient supply chains on the planet. That is inflationary. And we need to support America's technology champs because at the end of the day, we're going to, you know, this, this new Cold War, if it is one, will be won or lost on who's can best channel and master things like AI and quantum computing. But if you're helping America's tech champions, you're worsening some elements of the digital addiction. And so in each case, solving one makes the other three more difficult. And that's what makes this so hard. Uh, that's Bruce, I totally agree with everything you're saying there. And I think that is why, just to reiterate, uh, it, it, China-related issues may be the one place where we can get true bipartisan bills through uh, the Hill this year and into next year, even in a contested election year. Uh, the more and more when I'm up on the Hill, I see uh, members of all stripes realizing the challenges here and that they have to work together. So I, I do see this is a, a, a place ripe for policy development over the next 16 months. Well, it's interesting, too, because what I hear a lot on the Hill and you're seeing uh, Chairman Gallagher at the uh, at the China Select Committee uh, that was formed in the House on a bipartisan basis, they've really tried to keep that committee uh, in its operation bipartisan with he, the ranking he, member. With ranking minister Raja Krishnamurthy of Illinois. And yes, uh, those uh, two gentlemen uh, are working very well. And, and look, these are uh, high pressure and complicated issues here. So it would be easy to retreat to their corners. They're not doing that. Well, I don't have a good segue here uh, to, the, <laughs> to the next, to the AI, next addiction, sure but AI and debt. Uh, what's the segue? Well, so I'm sorry. It, it's I thought you were going to go uh, kind of vine to vine. Te uh, China to AI is is, you know, is uh, is of great concern. And ultimately, I think we're amidst the great AI freakout of 2023. It is a freakout, a moral panic. It's and what's funny is if you've been following this, nothing so fundamentally changed other than public awareness and media awareness when GPT three became GPT four you know, and admittedly said, you know, what are you doing, Dean? And, you know, tried to back you away from uh, turning the computer off. Uh, suddenly, it's on everybody's lips. Every policy, you know, Schumer, Senator, the leader Schumer, in, in very leader Schumer format, announced they were soon to be putting out a deal, which was news to his staff. Uh, but they're, you know, they are working on it. Senator Thune is working on it. Everybody's now working on it. The White House is bringing CEOs in and they're focusing on it. Um, it's sound and fury, admittedly signifying something. AI is a real deal. And what we in the slide deck, what we observed is, you know, what makes AI different and unique is if you think historically about tech, sometimes tech's been really powerful, like nuclear or biotech, you know, or even hacking tools. And what we've recognized is we need to limit access to those that are really powerful. Sometimes technology is ubiquitously available. Think electricity, think cell phones. And the idea is, okay, let's make sure that no one user has too much power because everybody's got access to them. AI increasingly is overwhelmingly powerful and available to everybody. And while I'm less worried about the robot apocalypse, you know, coming to enslave all of us, right now we've all been worried about the, the knucklehead who has crazy easy access to an AR-15. That is not safe. That is not good. If they have access to an unbelievably powerful AI, if they can design a bioweapon, if they can crash a system because the AI can give them superhuman capabilities, that's really bad and really dangerous. And we are rapidly moving to a world where AI is overwhelmingly powerful and overwhelmingly ubiquitous. And we have a slide on that. And that's why everybody is freaking out, being like, wow, this is moving so much faster than we appreciated, and there aren't guardrails. Yeah. Bruce, Bruce, you should be freaking out, I, I, because 
I myself have asked Chat GPT to create a Bruce Melman slide deck, and it's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Needs far less coffee. The as robots well. <laughs> are coming for you. It's really interesting, though, to watch the sort of the scramble on the hill. Uh, Leader Schumer has got some got some New York interests, I think, that spurred him along. Uh, Senator Thune is actually uh, pretty far along in in producing some text, I think, on his bill. Uh, Congresswoman Lofgren has uh, has announced an effort. Uh, over on the House side, she uh, being uh, representing Silicon Valley over there. But we're really like, you can tell, uh, the, the Internet was famously described in a, in a Senate hearing in the 1990s as a series of tubes. And we're still sort of, you can tell the Hill is still in that series of tubes level of understanding, as a, as a lot of us are. Well, uh, the last addiction on the list, Bruce, is inflation, and you tied it together nicely because inflation most immediately is impacted uh, by interest rates, uh, which are on the rise. And as we return to, uh, we we return to historically normal levels of interest in the four, five, six percent range, uh, yet still stand at over thirty trillion dollars in debt, and we've never. Uh, dealt with a debt service at this level. How do you see inflation playing into the addiction and, and playing into the other three? Yeah, so the addiction here is the addiction to easy money. Inflation is the wake-up call that we can no longer uh, enjoy what, you know, look, when, when interest rates are cheap, it's easier to borrow money. You can start a business. You can buy a home. You can go to college with less debt. A lot of positive things. Because of two decades, every time there was a problem, we would get bailed out. So the tech bubble, we would get bailed out. The Great Recession, you know, interest rates would get dropped and the Fed would increasingly, uh, you know, start buying assets. There was the so-called taper tantrum. When they tried to raise rates again, the markets went crazy and said, all right, we're not going to do that. Then obviously with COVID and the challenge is after two decades, we have questions about what systemic risks might exist in our country that we don't appreciate because they were predicated upon forever low interest rates that are no longer forever low interest rates as the Fed ratchets things up. So we saw Silicon Valley Bank. They were assessed by credit risk. They were holding treasuries. That's as safe as it gets for credit risk. Interest rate risk wasn't even part of the Fed tests that weren't applied to them. Um, but it turns out they were holding stuff that was illiquid and uh, not all at par value. Combine that with the fact that people can go on their phones and withdraw their money. So, well, and that, that is the digital risk, by the way, of, you know, you the first digital bank run, but we saw it there. We're seeing it with investment down rounds, um, which will be bad for pensions and others who, who are invested in PE or invested in VC potentially. We're seeing a reduction in commercial lending. Commercial real estate was already reeling from the failure to return by people who wanted to work from home. But you then say, all right, one more step. Well, a whole lot of people have credit card debt, they have student debt, they have housing debt, they have medical debt, those rates are gonna start resetting upward. And when that happens, that's a huge problem. Now, you know, again, the solution set here, you might say, well, let's trade more in the most uh, disinflationary way. Okay, you know, take the tariffs off China. Well, we don't wanna do that. You know, and all the solutions you would find, you know, well, let's tech's good for productivity, let's inefficiency, let's do that. So. While I don't think any of the campaigns, including Senator Scott, who announced uh, a few hours ago and we should turn to, are going to say, you know, I'm gonna, my, my uh, agenda is I'm going to solve the four addictions that Melman Consulting talked about. <laughs> um, they really do animate in sort of the background noise, both policy and politics of 23 and 24. 
Well, Bruce, you brought it up. Uh, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina, uh, a man near and dear to my heart. Uh, he's, uh, I, I've, I've known him. I've known his staff uh, for quite some time. Uh, announced his presidential candidacy today. He's getting into a field uh, that includes former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, uh, former uh, South Carolina Governor and Ambassador Nikki Haley, uh, and uh, Aren't there two other guys. There's an entrepreneur, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, who I've seen a little bit. Author I, of Woke Inc. I know that literally is his claim to fame. Nothing about. It's like what was the uh, well, who was the entrepreneur on the D side last time around? Yes, he's this cycle's Andrew Yang, and Andrew I predict Yang. he will do about as well. Uh, look, I the. I think where we stand in the, uh, the race as of today. I did not mention the former president yet. Well, I am happy to, to do that for <laughs> I, you, I know you are. My I biggest question are. is this. The South Carolina uh, primary, very important. Uh, my question is, which one of them will be coming in third? Will it be Nikki Haley or will it be Tim Scott? Because I know neither one of them are going to win their home state because that is going to be Donald Trump. Uh, the people who have announced that they are running for president are unwilling to take on the president, who is the leader of the Republican Party. Uh, and we've seen this act before. This is like watching the same train wreck over and over and over again. It's just you change the players. Uh, you know, Jeb Bush is is now Ron DeSantis. Uh, uh, you know, and we can fill in all the players from last time who he basically clobbered. He's going to do it again. He is unstoppable. He is more powerful than he was uh, at this time in 2015. He's going to run the tables. So first, uh, I'm not counting Tim Scott out yet for two reasons. First, because so far in my lifetime, the worst sequel of all time is Caddyshack 2. But Trump v. Biden, uh, the rematch, would go down as an even worse sequel. So I'm hoping not. But I also, I mean, Tim, look, everybody loves Senator Scott from South Carolina and his message. If you think about it, he's the only one attempting an optimistic message. Trump's, Biden's message, fear MAGA. Uh, DeSantis's message, fear woke CEOs. Trump's message, fear anybody but me being president, otherwise everything is going to go terrible. Scott's message so far seems to be fear not. Actually, things aren't as bad as people say. I found it incredibly refreshing. It's uh, it's it's forward-looking. It's optimistic. DT, I take your point. They are, and I will say to all uh, the folks in the Republican primary field, uh, current and future, you are not going to get out of this uh, successfully without confronting uh, the former president. There's no other way around this. And, and you, if you continue to try to tap dance around him, you're not going to have a successful candidacy. Uh, elections, all elections, are about choices. And if you don't give people a choice, uh, they're going to go with what they know. And I, I tell you this, Dean, it, the problem is this. It can't even be confronting the president. Like, you have to come at him fist flying if you think you're going to beat him and nobody does that the problem is he's the biggest bully in the room nobody is as mean and nasty as he is and the only other thing i got to correct bruce on you said uh, joe biden's uh, message is fear maga his message is restoring the soul of america and the job isn't done oh that's a good clinton imitation <laughs> dt went full bubble right there oh boy well you didn't get all the way through that with a straight face <laughs> I, i'm gonna close out here uh with one prediction Governor DeSantis is going to surprise people. He has got, uh, I think there's more under the hood uh, than, than people know. Yeah, I'm, I'm already surprised how awkward he Laugh is. Now, there's, there's no doubt that the former president is a large personality. We also are large personalities here at 14th and G. And our latest edition of 2023 in 23 minutes, we will return to do it all again. 
Thanks to my colleagues, Republican Bruce Melman, Democrat David Thomas. Appreciate you being here on 14th and G. Thank you, Dean. Happy Memorial Day. Thanks for listening to today's podcast, brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman Consulting. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.